grace and peace to you. I'm Ken Broman, folks, and this is Pastors for Pastors. Welcome to the second episode of this new podcast, whose purpose is to support and celebrate the role of pastor in the Church of Jesus Christ, regardless of size or denomination. In this second episode, I believe we need to spend some time reflecting on the question, what can predominantly white congregations do to move themselves and our culture, hopefully, a few steps away from the racism that most of the time we're not even aware of, but that people of color see and feel and live with every day of their lives. It's like the air we breathe and live in, but we never notice until the wind starts to blow. Well, it's clear that the winds of change have begun to blow since the murder of George Floyd. There's been increased conversation and protests about racism. And I think most of us who are part of predominantly white congregations want to know what we can do. The problem often seems too big. Some folks, maybe many folks in our congregations don't want to talk about it because it can become divisive. But we know in our hearts, we need to talk about it. We know the Lord wants us to talk about it. We need to do something, but we're not sure what. I recently had a conversation with Randy Harris, the pastor of Highland Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The Highland Church is situated in a comfortable neighborhood, mostly middle-class folk, but they have a tradition of leadership in confronting and working to change the racism we live and breathe. I asked Randy to share some of the things his church is doing that many of the rest of us might begin to do as well, that might be the first steps toward healing, toward detoxifying this tainted air we breathe and move the needle a bit closer to the world Jesus is seeking to build. I began by asking Randy to tell us a little bit about Highland Presbyterian's tradition of working for equality for all God's people. Highland has been uh, engaged in, in conversations about about race and racism and uh, the the plight of, of black Americans for uh, for decades now um, you know going back to the beginning of the Presbyterian interracial dialogue in 1992 when Steve McCutcheon Sam Stevenson and Carlton Eversley uh, first gathered and got that dialogue going. In recent years, that conversation has taken lots of different shapes and twists and turns. And uh, um, for the last couple of years at Highland, um, having heard a number of, of, of our colleagues in the Black community encouraging um, white folks to to do some work on our on our own uh, we we have uh, had some very helpful conversations so particularly focused on becoming more aware of of white privilege um and of of 
the ways that uh, that even well-intentioned white folks uh, have been less helpfully involved in in these issues than we might want to admit. We have uh, we hosted Debbie Irving, um, the author of Waking Up White, which was a book recommended um, by our General Assembly co-moderators a few years ago. Uh, and have had several groups who have read and worked through that book together. Um, a couple of years ago, we started a, we started a book group called uh, Listening to Black Voices, where we have intentionally uh, read through through folks such as um, Howard Thurman, uh, James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, uh, more recent voices like Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Brian Stevenson, Austin Channing Brown. Um, we've read, um, we read the nickel boys, uh, a novel, um, and, and all of these as a way of, of trying to get a stronger sense of what it's like to, to be black in America without constantly asking our, our black neighbors, uh, who are, you know, you know, Part of these conversations with us to keep doing that work. Uh, that that's work that we can do. We can we can listen through through these voices of folks who have been writing and explaining uh, the, the pain and the struggles that that they have faced. All of those all of those conversations uh, and studies and reflections have have helped us as we as we face this particular Kairos kind of moment that has happened in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, and what we are recognizing is that all the work that we've done is is a, but a prelude to to the work that's before us now and that's going to be before us for uh, the foreseeable future. Um, honestly, I think this is work that uh, most of us will be doing for the rest of our lives in ministry and beyond, um, and and rightly so. In Winston-Salem, an initiative arose largely within um, more evangelical uh, churches that has drawn uh, some of us more mainline folks in as well. A community letter uh, of solidarity and support uh, uh, was signed by pastors of predominantly white congregations in town. Uh, and those who were part of that are now in a weekly study with our with our black colleagues in town. We're reading the book Woke Church, um, which was recommended by by one of our black colleagues uh, as a as a helpful uh, book to reckon with the challenges before us. So we have that going on. Our session has just um, has just agreed to to form a racial justice task force as a as a standing committee um, for you know again for as long as we can see, ensuring that we'll always have an active elder and an active deacon on the committee to ensure good flow um, both uh, to and from this task force um, as we seek to make decisions as a congregation about opportunities for ministry and ways that we can share and what what we fully believe is God's particular work in for transformation uh, in in this this very painful time. There's a lot of work to do, and we're grateful for partnerships. I know within the within the Presbytery, there have been some really helpful conversations and uh, and expressions of partnership as as we seek to to do this work together. And we're we're benefiting from denominational efforts in recent years. The the gifts of uh, of the internet and other forms of of uh, connection these days 
put us in touch with an abundance of wonderful resources to help us uh, in doing this work. We don't do it alone, um, which is good, but um, it, it's it's work that I fully believe that, that God is in the midst of and work to which God is calling us, um, especially these days. How can or how ought the church be more of a leader in this area in terms of the, our culture, uh, the, the wider world outside the church. What prompts the question is, uh, certainly back in the civil rights movement, most churches, I think, were not positively involved or engaged in that, but many were. And uh, I, I'm not sure I see that coming from churches in, in these days as as I remember as a boy, <laughs> that happening back in the 60s. And the other thing that, that popped into my head was the fact that if, if NASCAR can outlaw Confederate flags, yeah. what can the church do? <laughs> uh, is NASCAR out ahead of us in terms of cultural leadership? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as as we know, the church has not always uh, led the charge on this. Uh, in fact, uh, with um, in, in the Presbyterian Church, I mean, it, it wasn't until 1983 that we figured a way to get back together after we separated at the time of the Civil War. It's a tough question. And I think part of it is that uh, for for uh, a number of years, um, the church has felt that it's largely been sidelined culturally, that uh, there, there was a time when pastors spoke, the community listened. Um, and I think that largely, you know, pastors and churches don't have that sense so much anymore. Uh, and so how do we, how do we uh, try to find our way back to that, that public square um, in, in a way that, that has the chance to make a difference. I think one of the answers is, is, is we do it together. I heard from a number of folks who, who found um, that a, a letter signed by pastors of so many different churches in town, so many different denominations represented, that that was a powerful witness. And it I can't, I can't recall uh, a time in recent memory when when such an action happened. What will come from that, I don't know. Our, our, our black colleagues in town remind us regularly that after the media storm has moved on to whatever the next issue is going to be, that's when the work needs to be done. And, and so I, I think that uh, the work of, of forming these partnerships and being willing to be held accountable um, for, for the work that we're doing is going to be an important part of this. Um, will that get the same kind of attention that a NASCAR decision about banning Confederate flags? I don't know that it will. And I think one of the questions that we need to reckon with is, are we willing to keep doing the work even if we don't get that sort of recognition for doing it? You know, in my Presbyterian heart, um, as I have noted often, um, enthusiasm is fleeting. Uh, but if we ever want to get anything done, we need a committee. Um, and so our hope is that by by putting some structure in place, we'll be able to keep this work happening and keep it in the forefront uh, of our, our life and ministry. When when the world is, is ready to move on, that we're going to keep doing the work. One of the challenges that the letter that we, that we all signed puts forward is for, um, for our congregations 
to to find ways to invest in black initiatives in the community that address some of the some of the the deeper challenges that the black community faces again with that kind of investment uh, and partnership comes comes the possibility for some lasting transformation I have heard uh, I've heard colleagues who have said you know this this feels like it could be a, a sort of a new Pentecost kind of a moment uh, mm-hmm. for the church, a, a fresh empowering of the spirit to rise to to, to this particular challenge. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that that is the case. May it, may it be so. Indeed. I, I think one of the things that's different about this is that there, there, there have been lots of media reports of police shootings. And, and for anyone who didn't want to uh, accept what they were seeing, uh, there was no way to look at this video of George Floyd being killed and watch him die and and say that that was anything more than um, a white police officer who just didn't care that right. this black man on the ground couldn't breathe. Nobody could d- doubt what they were looking at. And, and that has made this so real and, and uh, in, in our faces that we've had to it, it it has, and I, honestly, I think I think part of what has helped us deal with the absolute brutality of this this time around is the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. and that we can't simply get back to the busyness of our lives and and let this pass as just another unfortunate incident. Um, our our lives have been disrupted, and. We have had time to sit and watch and listen and hear this pain and to recognize that this is not an isolated incident. Um, you know, there, there is a reason that our black neighbors uh, have to tell their children about ways to respond when they are stopped by a police officer that's that's not a conversation that is necessarily common in the white community but it is in the black community the relationship with the with the police department is is different uh, i've heard one of our one of our colleagues in the presbytery say that the you know the the common sign on the on the side of the police car with the motto to protect and serve that in the black community, that's that's more of a question than it is a given, and that's uh, that's a struggle that has gone on for a very long time. One of the um, memes that I've seen floating around uh, with all this stuff about about George Floyd is a young black woman saying, "For those of you in the in the white community who are seeing all of this as a wake up call, you know, you need to be aware that this wake up call has been happening for going on four hundred years, and y'all been hitting the snooze button." Uh, this is not a new thing. This is not a new reality. Part of what's new is phones with video cameras and right. and police who who have those video recorders uh, as part of their uniform, where we're able to see uh, what's been happening. Um, another colleague a while back said, "The fact that it's happening isn't anything new. The fact that you're seeing it." is but in the black community we've known about these things happening for a very long time the way that we that we police needs needs to be addressed um, the work 
that police officers do is tremendously important and 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 vulnerable and risky and Yes, uh, there are some police officers who behave very badly, but one of the things that we have to reckon with is the fact that this keeps happening uh, suggests that there is something in our collective ethos that that leads some of these officers to believe that this is something that they can do and and likely get away with. That's something that we have to figure out. What is it about this ethos that leads leads these officers to believe that holding somebody down, pinning them down uh, with your your knee on their neck for eight minutes and forty six seconds that that it's okay to do that? Why would somebody think that that's the case? With you know, three other police officers there, right. none of whom said, "Hey, get off of him." Yeah, or or one one of them maybe did, but the officer didn't. And, right. And didn't right. feel like he needed to. What do we do with that? Those are questions certainly that are that are present in the in in the black community, but they need to be present in the white community too. This is not this is not something for any of us to sit back and and let somebody else ask about. The church has a part to play in that as as a voice in the community and an important voice, but we're certainly not going to be the only voice. Um, and we need to 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 recognize the the gifted voices that are out there and find ways to help amplify them. We do have some influence in the communities we serve, and and helping those voices be heard in 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 our in our congregations and and neighborhoods. I mean, these are these are things that we can do, and I think increasingly we're we're realizing that this is work we need to be doing. This is indeed the work we need to be doing. It is kingdom work. It is the work of Christ in lifting up the lowly and including the marginalized. Randy has given us several good concrete things we can do to begin this work in our churches if we haven't begun it yet. First, do the work of listening to what it's like to be black in a white-ruled society. We don't have to keep asking. We can do the work. Read the books that give us this perspective. I've included a list of some of those books in the description of this episode. If you have other books you would recommend, send me an email and share them. I'll give my email address in just a minute. So one thing is to start a reading group. Second, join with other pastors in solidarity with black churches. Find some other pastors who will join with you in public support for the ministries of black churches and reach out to some of the pastors of African-American churches to see if there is openness to conversations or ministries together. Third, form a racial justice task force or committee within your church that will hold your leadership accountable and not let the work stop when the enthusiasm fades. Fourth, form partnerships with other churches in your local or regional organizational body. For us Presbyterians, it's the Presbytery. For Methodists, it's the district. Whatever your regional organization of churches, reach out and find other pastors and churches who are feeling led to start this initiative. But don't stop there. Find out what denominational efforts there are that you can join. The fifth suggestion Randy made was to find ways for your congregation to 
invest in the black community. We're not talking about charity here, although there's nothing wrong with that if done sensitively and in the right way. But how about intentionally finding businesses your church can work with for the benefit of the church and the business? Being intentional about looking beyond our usual circles to find those people and companies who will benefit by our business. If you have comments or suggestions, please email me at pastors, the number four, pastors2020 at gmail.com. That's pastors, the number four, pastors2020 at gmail.com. Thanks again to Randy for his time and insight into this kingdom issue. I hope this program has been as helpful to you as it has been to me. Looking ahead to our next episode, I have been looking forward to this for a long time. I am fascinated by the process by which we preachers prepare our sermons. And I would love to start an ongoing conversation about how you prepare your sermon. I'm especially anxious to hear about that moment when the idea comes to you for each particular sermon, that creative moment when the prayer and the study and the exegetical work all come together and you have that aha moment of revelation, epiphany, and you say, that's, that's what I want to preach on. Of course, there are lots of other questions I'm interested in. Are you a lectionary preacher? And if not, how do you choose the passage you're going to preach on? Do you go through a book of the Bible or have some other plan? How far in advance do you start to work on a sermon? Months ahead or a few weeks? Or are you a sermon a week kind of preacher where you start on Monday or Tuesday or sometimes Thursday to put the sermon together? And in this pandemic world where most of us are still not gathering in person on Sunday, when do you preach your sermon? Do you record it earlier in the week? And what's that been like to shift from having it ready on Sunday to earlier in the week? Or do you live stream where you preach your sermon to a camera and an empty sanctuary or worship space on Sunday morning? So many questions. And I can't wait to start this conversation with you. I'd love for you to send me an email or Better yet, record an audio or even video and send it to me and I'll share it on the air. My email address again is pastors, the number four, pastors2020 at gmail.com. That's pastors, the number four, pastors2020 at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you and exploring the multitude of ways God's Spirit speaks to and through us all. That'll be next time on Pastors for Pastors. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when that new episode is available. Oh, and if you have a good word or two for this program, please give us a good rating as well. Blessings to you. Until next time, I'm Ken Broman, folks, and this is Pastors for Pastors.